Welcome back. How fun. So I promised I wasn't going to go really long, and then look what I did. Really long is the thing I do. What do you do? Four-hour podcast on Hegel. So as people kind of wander back in, I'll kind of ramble a little bit. But we just talked about the proximate uh, ideological origins, the 100-year-long shaft of the spear that has critical race here at its tip. I'm just going to keep saying that because it's hilarious. And now we're going to talk about the 150 or so years of muscle behind it. And so we're going to talk about the deep ideological origins of critical race theory. And of course, that means since we just talked about neo-Marxism, which is obviously derived from Marxism, and we just talked about postmodernism, which I said was post-Marxist, and we see the threads of neo-Marxism and Marxism all throughout critical legal studies, liberationism, etc. Obviously, we are dealing with something Marxian. And of course, at the lecture last night, I believe we covered that this was um, unequivocally the case, that Marx is behind all of this intellectually. So we'll begin with Marx. To kind of frame that, though, let me read an uh, interesting quote that I mentioned in the first lecture um, from Richard Delgado on the founding conference of critical race theory. So this occurred in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989. Uh, he said, this was in an interview he did, um, I think in the late 90s, so before Critical Race Theory and Introduction came out. I believe in the interview, if I recall correctly, I'd have to check, he indicates that it would be great to write a high school level book, which came out in Critical Race Theory and Introduction. I was a member, he said, of the founding conference. Two dozen of us gathered in Madison, Wisconsin to see what we had in common and whether we could plan a joint action in the future, whether we had a scholarly agenda we could share, and perhaps a name for the organization. Kimberly Crenshaw provided that in Critical Race Theory. I had taught at the University of Wisconsin, and Kim Crenshaw later joined the faculty as well. The school seemed a logical site for it because of the Institute for Legal Studies that David Trebek was running at the time and because of the Hasty Fellowship Program. The school was a center of left academic legal thought, so we gathered at that convent they did not actually have it at the school, they had it at a convent near the school in Madison, for two and a half days around a table in an austere room with stained glass windows and crucifixes here and there, an odd place for a bunch of Marxists, and worked out a sense of set of principles. We then went our separate ways. Most of us who were there have gone on to become prominent critical race theorists, including Kim Crenshaw, Mary Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, Derek Bell, who was doing critical race theory long before it had a name, was at the Madison workshop and has been something of an intellectual godfather of the movement, so we were off and running. An odd place for a bunch of Marxists. So we can't ignore, just like we can't ignore the threads to neo-Marxism, I don't think we can ignore the thread to Marxism. So we have to understand what Marxism is. Marx had a peculiar view of history. A historicist view of history that history progresses along a particular trajectory. And he looked at the economic and material conditions as characterizing what history is, and he believed that history progressed through six stages anywhere in the world that history was happening. And it progressed dialectically, according to what he called dialectical materialism. And those six stages began in primitive communism, tribal, small group, everybody's family, everybody shares, then progresses into a slave system where some people figure out domination and exploitation and take it to its extreme and enslave others to do their labor. And from there, it evolves out. He's looking, of course, back at the French state before the revolution to a feudal estate economy. Feudal lords run estates, serfs who are not quite slaves but are basically still slaves do all the labor and generate this new economy. This eventually gives way to the idea of private property. Private property gives rise to the idea of trade of private property, and this gives rise to capitalism. Now your estate becomes capital, and you can trade your capital as you will. Capitalism is filled with dialectical contradictions that will eventually become intolerable to Marx. The working class will slowly awaken to a class consciousness, at which point they will become a proletariat, which is an awakened working class to the exploitation that they're suffering, that their labor is being extracted from them to produce surplus value that the capitalists and the bourgeoisie steal from them and collect for themselves. 
And those contradictions will eventually awaken the working class to revolution. The proletariat will revolt. We'll have a proletarian revolution that will usher in a fifth stage of history, a managed state economy called socialism, where the working class will form a new state. They will proceed through a revolution. The revolution will seize the means of material production in society, and they will manage the state. But since they have an awakened consciousness to exploitation and alienation, they won't repeat the mistakes of the past and eventually the contradictions that are now being worked out only by the enlightened, only by the Gnostic, who know the trajectory of history and they know the realities, the lived realities of exploitation and oppression, will work out the contradictions in the right way and eventually the state, which is run by the dictatorship of the proletariat, will um, realize its redundancy and it will start to dissolve itself and eventually will completely dissolve itself into a classless, stateless, utopian society called communism. This is how Marx viewed history. He laid this idea out in 1848. We already read a piece from the Communist Manifesto in the first lecture where he points out in that communism can be summarized to what he calls a sentence that isn't abolition of private property. This is Marx's view of history. This is Marx's view of how the world works. This is his historicism. This, the, history is progressing whether we want it to or not along this arc. And that the people who take up the cause, the people who become conscious and move it along, are the people who are making history do what it does. And the people who have that consciousness and take up the cause will be designated as on the right side of history and those who resist and try to maintain the status quo of an earlier frame are on the wrong side of history. And in the end, history will judge. The people who live in the utopia will look back and they will judge. And they become the eye at the end of history. History ends when communism arise, arises because there are no more contradictions to work out. All disputes, all conflict are interpersonal, no, none across classes, no stratification of society. And those enlightened people who live in the utopia at the end of history will look back and judge who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. You can easily see how this is a projection of the idea that we can look back a couple generations and think, wow, some stuff was backwards. Imagine how backwards people are gonna think we are in two generations. Oh my gosh, we need to be progressives. We need to get ahead of that curve. We need to do it faster, which Lenin phrased, accelerate the contradictions, move the dialectic faster. Dialectical materialism will unfold, we'll get to the utopia faster if more people participate and we accelerate the exposure of the contradictions. These contradictions from Marx would have been material contradictions like we live in a rich society, but there are poor people. We live in a rich society, but there's high infant mortality, whatever it happens to be. You hear these ones actually, that second one brought up. By the way, I learned recently that it turns out that that's a fake manipulation. The reason that the United States has what does it score, like in the 20s or 30s or something on infant mortality, despite being one of the richest countries in the world, is because it classifies premature births that they attempted to save as infant deaths. Whereas in most other countries, they're classified as miscarriages. If you correct for that, we're in the top five. We actually, that's a complete distortion and manipulation. What a shock. Another Marxist lie. The process Marx gave for this, for how this happens, like I said, is called dialectical materialism. The contradictions of society, of the material conditions of society, will present themselves, they will expose themselves, and so the dialectic will progress, where these contradictions, the intolerable, we're a rich society with so many poor people. We have all of this capital, we have all this technology, industrial capitalism in his time, high technology now, in our time as we consider it, and yet, we can't feed the hungry. This many people starve. This many people live in poverty. This many people don't have clean water. This many people this, this many people that. And if we just rearranged the economy and redistributed the resources more reasonably, more fairly, more justly, then we would get past those contradictions. They would be worked out. And the model that he has for dialectical materialism is essentially that we're going to look at those and find a synthetic union of those that moves us toward more and more critical consciousness, or for him, class consciousness. This managed state in the middle, socialism between capitalism and communism, is led by a dictatorship 
of the proletariat. That word was not original to Marx, but Marx and Engels used it after it emerged from one of their acolytes in 1852. Um, I forgot the last name, so I won't try to say it. It starts with a W, has lots of letters. It's in German, so I can't say it anyway. Uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat was the idea, though, that those people who had awakened to class consciousness, and it's very important, the point of Marxism is to awaken class consciousness. Those people who had awakened to class consciousness will be the ones to bring about the proper progression of history, and they would do so initially by establishing a dictatorship of the enlightened. The philosopher kings are coming back, and the people who are the philosopher kings or whom Herbert Marcuse said would be two-dimensional men or multi-dimensional men, or in Jose Medina's words, more recently in critical race theory, having a kaleidoscopic consciousness aware of all of the various parameters of oppression. These people who have the raised consciousness, the Gnostic awareness, are going to usher us through to the utopia, to certain historical possibilities that have become regarded as utopian possibilities, as Marcuse put it, as I said earlier this morning. And that dictatorship of the proletariat is justified. Think it's gonna use repressive tolerance, anybody? I think so. Is justified because it's going to overthrow and end oppression and bring us to that utopian state. So what I wanna make, I mean, I think this is just a, it's a simple enough summary of Marx. I could talk about class conflict, conflict theory, et cetera. That's how he believed that the dialectical materialism moved, the stratified members of society realize that they're in opposition with one another, they're in conflict with one another, and um, framing out all social division across, across, across class hierarchies or other hierarchies as con points of conflict. So this is gonna, remember, we do away with peace. That's what Robin D'Angelo told us. We do away with peace. We do away with freedom. Uh, that's going to, um, that conflict is going to generate the movement of the dialectic. That's our job of being on the right side of history, is to create the conflict across the class, to awaken the consciousness to be revolutionaries. Um, that's very important to understand, but this is a simple enough summary of Marx's ideas. We don't need to get very deep into Marx, especially since I've talked super long. What I want to do, though, is I want to talk about the importance of that dictatorship of the proletariat, because as many of you have heard in my podcast, that communism doesn't know how, Marx didn't know how. Marxism doesn't know how. Communism doesn't have the slightest idea how this is supposed to work. They just know that if the enlightened take all the power and instantiate a dictatorship, then eventually it will get there. And in every case where it hasn't worked, and this is horrific, hundreds of millions of people dead under communism, why do they just excuse that? Why do they just ignore that? Why do they just downplay that? Because that's just part of history unfolding. That was contradictions. They thought they had the right Marxism, they didn't have the right Marxism, it was too vulgar. Hundreds of millions of people dead, so the dialectic progresses. Their religion demands that you understand those people as sacrifices to the greater good, to the cause. That was us learning that that version of capital T theory doesn't work. We just have to give a new dictatorship with a more refined theory all the power and it'll work this time. And ideally it wouldn't even be a dictatorship, but we don't know how to do it otherwise. So now in critical race theory, we face a dictatorship of the anti-racists. Just like I said, whiteness is property, is whiteness equals bourgeois property, that that's the property that Marx wanted to abolish. Here we have anti-racists take the place of the awakened proletariat. Proletariat is the working class who realizes it's oppressed. It's not the working class itself. Marx believed eventually most or all of the working class would, would get there. The neo-Marxists realized that's not the case. They blame cultural hegemony. So you're starting to see the threads come together. You have to awaken it a different way. The proletariat is the awakened, the anti-racists are the awakened under critical race theory. Same, same. And we are attempting, and I think Canada just took a step toward creating a genuine dictatorship of the anti-racists. So to give you proof of that, I'll just read from our favorite, very smart friend, Ibram X. Kendi. So Ibram Kendi got asked you know, they have this kind of big questions thing, find solutions thing or whatever on Politico, and got asked, how do we end inequality? And they, they turned to Dr. Kendi, Mr. Rogers, they turned to Mr. Rogers for an answer, and he wrote this. Everybody I think that knows about his work knows about this. To fix the original sin of racism, 
Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Remember, that's the highest law in the land. So we're going to add a, an amendment. We're going to change the Constitution in line with anti-racism. And what is this going to do? They should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. He misspelled it. <laughs> Not principles, principles. You know, the guy at the school who is your pal. I would say you can't make this up, but my job has been to make this up for a while. What are these two principles? Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. You see different outcomes, racism's the explanation. Where did this come from, by the way? Where did this idea come from? Other than their weird systemic thinking in neo-Marxism, practically it came from bad jurisprudence on the Civil Rights Act that switched the view to disparate impact being able to be considered evidence of discrimination, even if you can't point to it, even if there's no intent. Bad jurisprudence. You want an answer to this? If you can get the courts to do it, reverse that jurisprudence. Go back to a narrow definition of discrimination that requires intent. And also stop with the protected classes. Narrow definition of discrimination, no protected classes, everybody's on equal footing. But we're going to have racial inequity is evidence of racist policy enshrined in our constitution, according to Ibram Kendi, if he gets his way. And the different racial groups are equals. I'm sure that means that uh, in a very profound, equal way. It's a very odd principle. You know, it's a, it's a perversion, a dialectical manipulation of all men are created equal, which is already there. We're going to make it now about racial groups. The different racial groups are equals. The dialectic was progressing as we just saw with intersectionality this way. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold. Too many differences, unconstitutional. As well as racist ideas by public officials, with racist ideas and public officials clearly defined. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, which I point out is the DOA. It's like, really? Death on arrival. Permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure that they won't yield racial inequity monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. Dictatorship of the anti-racists. We're going to change the Constitution to make a fourth branch of government called the DOA, the Department of Anti-Racism, that is empowered to put critical race theory at the heart of every state, local, federal policy, private policy, every public official, every utterance, to make sure it's compliant with awakened racial consciousness. Dictatorship of the anti-racists. I don't know what the racial fourth stage of history is. It's like racial capitalism or whatever it is that they're mad at. White supremacy, I'm sure, is what they call it. Systemic racism, whatever we currently live in. But the goal is to usher in a dictatorship of the anti-racists to bring in a managed transitional state where on the other side we have equity and racial justice which are the new names for race communism. It's exactly the same idea. Exactly the same. I would, with my background as a mathematician, call it an isomorphism. I don't even think it's a homomorphism. I think it's a straight up isomorphism. It's exactly the same idea in a different domain. So Marx is at the very heart, through neo-Marxism, even through post-Marxist, post-modernism, through all of these various pieces, through Marxist feminism, which preceded all of these other 
black feminism movement, through black liberation and all the other liberation movements which picked up Marxist ideas. Marx is at the very heart of the critical race project, and I don't think it's possible to deny that. And their goal is to get from whatever stage of racial history we're in now, I guess we've left slavery, then we had Jim Crow, then we have apparently freedom, color blindness. We have to get from color blindness through color awareness, color consciousness, and then we'll have racial justice on the end. But that doesn't know how. The how is create a super law over everything that controls every level of public and private policy and thought. And then we'll get there, and it'll work this time. It's exactly the same. So Marx is at the very heart of critical race theory, and if you boil down critical race theory to what it's actually trying to do, and remember critical race theory is as critical race theory does, you end up right back at Marxism using race. So the people who claim that it is racial Marxism, who I've criticized myself, are actually not wrong but they have to be able to make the argument better because it couldn't convince me until I convinced myself. <laughs> Marx didn't come out of the ground either. It turns out, you know, he was a pretty resentful guy. It's not like, but he had his own context. He had his own ideas. He was a huge fan of a couple of other folks that we're gonna now turn to, namely uh, Georg Wilhelm, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. We'll just call him GWF Hegel or Hegel from now on. We won't butcher that again, and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Hegel was also a huge fan of Rousseau, so those threads are pretty tight. So Hegel, who is Hegel? Hegel is associated most tightly with the dialectic. Hegel is most tightly associated with the dialectic. I don't remember if I put the quote in here from Marx about how he stole the dialectic. I did not, okay, you don't need it though. He says that he took Hegel's idea which was the first thing that made the dialectic which preceded him through Socrates or Plato, which also preceded him in Kant, a German idealist philosopher who was trying to create a systemic, uh, systematic philosophy. He took it and made it productive, but according to Engels, inapplicable because it was too abstract. And Marx made it material. Dialectical materialism was born out of taking the dialectical thought of Hegel and making it material. Marx said that he turned Hegel on his head, that Hegel, his, his dialectical materialism is virtually the exact opposite of Hegel, but the reason is because Marx was a materialist, which he borrowed from his direct mentor, Feuerbach. Feuerbach was uh, a young Hegelian, and so deeply involved in the progressive movement that followed from Hegel's thought, and Marx just took those two ideas together and created dialectical materialism out of it. We're gonna do the dialectic, but we're only gonna pay attention to the material world. And what Marx says is we're freeing the rational kernel from the, from the mystical shell with Hegel. Hegel had the dialectic, but it was contained in a mystical shell, but it had a rational kernel, so we're gonna get that out of there. By the way, that's kind of basically alchemical thought, that bad ideas like the lead, the mundane in the world, uh, have the seeds the kernels of gold within them, and if you do the right processes, then you can free the gold kernels and turn the base metal into lead, or into gold, I'm sorry. So lead turns to gold by whatever magical process that frees the seeds of gold so that it'll grow throughout the entire base metal. This is basically the same idea that Marx had with the material conditions of society, and he got that because those are the ideas that Hegel had about the ideas that form society as an idealist. So Hegel was this guy called, a, a type of philosopher called a speculative idealist. So idealist means he's focused on ideas and the way that ideas shape the world at a very intrinsic level, that whatever the ideas are, very much like platonic forms, that those ideas then give rise to the conditions of the world and they follow from that. So they're very interested in the ideas and he was speculative. Speculum, or speculative refers to speculum. Speculum is Latin for mirror. And so the actual image associated with this is some guy with a wig and a big fancy like ivory tower room, looking into a mirror, reflecting up into the fuzzy clouds. That's the image that's supposed to capture what they were doing. So they're reflecting a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection. They're reflecting on what they see, and they're basically doing all the work, they're armchair philosophers, they're doing all their work in their head, speculative idealist. But what Marx called the mystical shell is speculation. 
Speculation was the thing that he was trying to get away from. Let's make it material. Get out of the speculative. Get into the material. Let's look at the actual conditions of the world, which is why Marx believed that what he was doing was scientific socialism, scientific analysis of history. His progression was believed to be a science of history, deterministic science of history. We have to get out of the speculative, mystical nonsense of Hegel with the ideas and all this and staring off into the clouds through a mirror and we have to bring it into the real world. So the connection between Hegel and Marx is pretty tight. Um, this dialectical process, however, was something that Hegel saw as a process of negation. He said that the way that you actually do the dialectic is by taking what is, looking at its abstract form through the speculative mirror, you take the abstract and you hit it with its negative. This is what Herbert Marcuse later called negative thinking and said that negative thinking will necessarily become positive. You hit it with its negative and this gives you a different perspective. And when you hit it with its negative and you have this different perspective, then you can come up with a concrete synthesis that retains the essence of the thing and its opposite, but lifts them up to a higher level. And the term for that in German to lift onto is Aufheben. Alfhaben was a word that he was absolutely, Hegel was absolutely taken with. He was spellbound by it. He wrote that he was spellbound by it. How amazing he said that the heart of his speculative philosophy and his dialectic is a speculative word. Alfhaben. Why? Because Alfhaben in German, technically, literally, Alf is on or onto. Haben is lift. It means to lift onto, literally. So to lift up, but it also means simultaneously to cancel, abolish, or annihilate, but also to keep and to preserve. So it means two opposite things. It's dialectical itself, two opposite things, to keep and to destroy, and then that comes together to mean to lift up, to put up onto a higher level. The Marxists translate Alfhaben as sublate, to sublate, to a higher level. The dialectical materialist process is to sublate the material conditions to a new thing that's going to lead us to communism, one step after another after another. So for Hegel, this is a much more metaphysical proposition. It's much more religious. And this is when I said, critical race theory is a belief system. You have to think of it this way because its ultimate theological origin is in Hegel's metaphysics. This is a very controversial and unpopular opinion. I think it's also an undeniable opinion when you actually look at it. Because one of the most famous, for example, one of the most famous dialectical syntheses that Hegel focused on was the, the fundamental religious question on beingness and nothingness. And he said that being is being and we see being, so being is, and then nothing, well, what is nothing? Well, nothing is its Antithesis, so you have the abstract idea of being and you hit it with its negative of nothing. And there must be a way to collide those things, abolish each, but keep their essentials and lift them up to a higher level of understanding. And for him, that was becoming. So that which becomes. History becomes, for Marx, by dialectical materialism. For Hegel, through speculative idealist dialectical thought. History becomes. But he had this being as he was couched in a very Christian context. He was looking at the Trinity. Of course, thesis, antithesis, synthesis is itself three pieces. So he's, everything's in these weird triads. And he's looking at you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's trying to make sense of this in terms of his supposedly universal systematic philosophy. And the way he then conceives of it is this thing he calls the absolute idea. That's God. And for him, the absolute idea being totally transcendent requires an abject other in the mundane. The divine has to be compared against the mundane in order to uh, have a dialectical opposite. The divine and the, uh, the mundane. And the divine and the mundane become the idea and the world, nature. And the life process, according to Hegel, though, was not contained in nature itself because nature is unthinking, it isn't that which can think, so it's human beings, and so Hegel had the statement that the state is the divine idea as it is expressed on earth. And if you realize he's thinking of the Christian trinity at that point, and he has the divine idea as God and his one and only son is the state, you start getting chills.
state replaces Christ. And for him, the state creates conditions, and those conditions create a spirit. You've all heard zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Hegel didn't talk, talk much about the, the, the zeitgeist. He talked about geist more generally, and he was interested in the weltgeist, the world spirit, and the idea that the objective spirit and the subjective spirit would come together to form the world spirit, and that this would be a process of becoming until the world spirit finally realized itself to be the absolute. And the ideas would be perfected, which is exactly the same kind of idea that Marx was using. He just put it in material words. And so what you have with Hegel then is a metaphysics where either the divine, the, the absolute idea produces the state, the state produces the culture, the culture produces new ideas. And this process through negation, constant negation of the contradictions revealing themselves is going to cause history to unfold until the divine being becomes. This is actually, I get in a lot of trouble for saying this, this is a hermetic or alchemical view, a religious view based in hermeticism, that God can't understand that he's God until he creates an abject other through which he understands himself. And the last contradiction to be figured out after all of the worldly contradictions are figured out, the last contradiction to be figured out will be that you have a God that is perfect and the only thing it doesn't realize is that it's perfect. And in the second that that realization is had, history ends because the ideas are perfect and that gives rise to a perfect state that creates a perfect management of society. So it's not even gonna be like a state, it'll be very libertarian and free, classless, stateless society under Marx. And that's gonna give rise to a spirit that's wholly nourishing where you have Marx and Engels talking about what would you do under communism? Well, maybe we'd all go fishing and we'd go hunting and we could listen to music and things. Maybe you could buy all three hats that the Soviet Union offered. You could eat twice a month. You know, all the things we're going to do when the world is perfect and the utopia arrives. So he has a metaphysical underpinning to this, and this is why you have to understand this as a religion. You have the exact same thing happening in critical race theory, the exact same thing. The only thing is that the, what you have, it's funny, I gave you those three pieces, I gave you those three pieces, Hegel is about the idea, Marx was about the state, and these people are about the Geist, the culture. Geist doesn't translate strictly as culture, but the system, actually. And if we want to tie this more to Gnosticism, the, systems be the system becomes a demi-ergos that creates the world as it is. And you see that this is a hermetic Gnostic religion that Hegel has been formulating that has, in a very tricky, they share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary way, subverted Christianity into a completely different faith. And I will tell you right now, this dialectical process, thought process of Hegel, is the operating system of leftism since the 1830s, since the young Hegelian progressives erupted out of his philosophy. Was Hegel a progressive? Who knows? Immediately upon his death in 1831, two huge movements were spawned that were Hegelian, the young Hegelians, which is super progressive, and the old Hegelians, which were uber-conservative supranationalists who believed that the Prussian state of 1830 was the perfect society that Hegel had described. What was Hegel's view? Try to read him, see if you can figure it out. It's virtually impossible to read Hegel. It makes no sense at all. It's painfully hard to read Hegel. So was he a progressive or not? Who knows? But he laid out this roadmap that Marx then said, being a student of that progressive line, that then said, this is how the world actually works. This is how we can put it into application. This is how we can use this, not just to study society, but to change it. And just to, while we're lingering on Hegel here before I get to the next thing, let me talk a couple more things about what Hegel thought. Hegel's big work was uh, in 1807, and it's usually just referred to as the Phenomenology of Spirit. The full title is something like System of Science, Volume 1, the phenomenology of spirit. So he believed that he was creating a system of science. We have to, and we're gonna do the German thing, oh no. <laughs> we have to understand that by science, he used the word Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft doesn't mean science the way that we mean science. Wissenschaft means knowledge, I think, technically in German. It's a broader category, at least it would have been for Hegel, a broader category than when we think of the scientific method. And in fact, Hegel broke it into two pieces. Hegel, no fan of Isaac Newton, by the way, thought Isaac Newton was a lunatic and terrible. Didn't like that whole um, objective truth thing so much. And he classified all of the stuff like what Isaac Newton would have been doing under the German term Verstand. 
which means understand or understanding, verstand. So now you have the understanding of the world, but that's a low-level understanding because it doesn't have speculative philosophy on top of it to make a systematic philosophy or theology out of it. And he had a separate word for his phenomenology, his higher-level thinking, and that was Vernunft, another German word, which gets translated as reason. But I think I would probably want to say that he meant something like rationale. This division between um, Verstand and Vernunft was core to how Hegel thought about ideas in the world. Basically, turns out his philosophy was Vernunft. And you can't really understand what the Verstand means unless you have the Vernunft. So unless you interpret it through his BS, you're wrong. Because the higher science is to believe Hegel. And this is where you have Marx saying, well, the dialectical materialism is a scientific study of history. It is scientific social theory or scientific socialism. It is the scientific approach, the one and only scientific approach. But we have to say that this is theory, with a capital T, science. It is this trick, right? But he's made it material, so now it's just science, except it's not. It's what we later see separated by Max Horkheimer into critical theory as Vernunft and traditional theory as the lower level for Stand, which then goes on to become exactly what we're dealing with today. Theory is the truer interpretation of all the facts. It is the filter, the theoretical lens, which you must look to understand the facts. Intersectionality becomes a new sensibility that interprets all the facts. And this goes straight line all the way back to Hegel's philosophy, which was a little bit megalomaniacal in that he thought his system of science, the phenomenology of spirit, was exactly how the world really works. And the scientific method aspect of this, philosophy as it had been done otherwise, traditional theory as it were, all of that is just something that helps you figure out how to contextualize his higher level reasoning. So the higher level reasoning, the systematic philosophy, AKA systematic theology of Hegel, because we saw the metaphysic, is the operating system of the left, and it operates through the dialectic. Now, Hegel didn't believe that the dialectic is it's not just something we do. It is something that is happening. The dialectic progresses. It progresses through the life process of humans, which is thinking, and is thinking about the contradictions and the ideas that causes this to happen. It was the contradictions in material conditions for Marx. It's the contradictions in the ideas for Hegel and this process of the absolute becoming and eventually awakening at the end of history progresses. History, he said, uses people and then discards them. Hundreds of millions dead under the Hegelian project of communism. History uses people and then discards them. Just playing out your role in the religion. Hundreds of millions of unnecessary deaths, hundreds of millions of ruined lives, just your part. Where did Hegel get these crazy ideas? Well, I mean, he studied philosophy. He was probably a smart guy. But he also was very interested in Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and in particular, he was very interested in something he wrote about in his philosophy of, this is Hegel's philosophy of right and philosophy of history books. And that's the master-slave dialectic. And of course, you can already hear, well, that's gonna be pertinent to critical race theory. As a matter of fact, it is. The master-slave dialectic was something that he borrowed from Rousseau. And it carries a very simple idea. I mentioned it in the first lecture last night. It carries a very simple idea that the master lives in the master's world, so the master is isolated within the master's perspective. The slave is a slave oppressed within the master's world, so it has a second perspective. So the slave becomes the dialectical opposite to the master, but the slave has a dual sight, a, dual, a double consciousness, and can therefore drive the dialectical process where the master cannot, because the master doesn't have the dialectical tools to push the dialectic. So only those who have the awakened slave consciousness can drive the dialectic, the double consciousness, the people who have accepted the critical theory, the people who have learned Vernunft. And he believed that the master and the slave, and I mean that literally, in actual slavery, constituted a dialectical pair. 
that had to work out. And history uses people and discards them, so he was actually like, well, slavery needs to happen. It's the only way we're going to get race relations to work out. They have to be put into this opposition. The slave perspective has to be brought to bear on the master so the dialectic between the races can play out. This is how he thought about the world. Where he got this was from looking at Rousseau, and Rousseau's reading these missives from, from uh, missionaries, priests, who were in the Caribbean and in Africa and wherever else the French were colonizing. Senegal, probably Southeast Asia, wherever they had gone. And it, reading these things, and Rousseau first misinterprets them, and then Hegel gets excited about them. And what Rousseau was looking at was, oh, wow, here in the West, we have this very um, linear, rational thought. The Enlightenment's happened. Of course, Rousseau's in a gigantic fight with David Hume, who he originally liked and then didn't like, and Voltaire's trashing him all the time and not a big fan of the Enlightenment at this point. Rousseau goes nuts, has this weird emotional like awakening experience, crying under a tree. You can read about it somewhere. And decides emotion is more important than reason, but he's reading these things from these, these colonized, or these colonizers actually, and he's misunderstanding their descriptions of the cultural differences that they're encountering, and decides that what you have is this very rational West that's lost itself because it's too rational. Reason is becoming unreason, we'll read about later in the, dialectical of the, the dialectic of the Enlightenment from Horkheimer and Adorno. Whereas the tribal Primitive communist societies have a different view. They're too emotional, too instinctual. So they can't build cities. They live too much in the instinct. But Western enlightened man, mid-18th century, is too heady, too rational, and has lost touch with that. And we have to get back to the natural man. And so he puts these ideas together and envisions what he calls savages made to live in cities as a third option, as a third approach, as a, turns out, synthesis of the noble savage paired against the rational uh, Westerner. And then this other German, Schiller, looks at Rousseau, big fan of Rousseau, and sees this and gets very excited about this idea and sticks a word on it. Alfhaven. Alfhaven. And Schiller taught Hegel the master-slave dialectic through the word Alfhaven. And Hegel fell in love with the word Alfhaven. And the entire history is colonial racism needing to play out. So why does it feel like critical race theory is simultaneously white supremacist and anti-white supremacist? Why does it uphold white supremacy so that it can use it as a dialectical other? Why does Kimberly Crenshaw say that in a white society, I have to say I am black to position it as a dialectical other? And these ideas go back through Rousseau as they were interpreted through Hegel, as they came through Marx and the neo-Marxists down to that bunch of Marxists in that convent. What an odd setting, creating critical race theory in 1989 in Madison, Wisconsin. Straight line, it's not hard to follow. It's not hard to follow. It's Friedrich Schiller, by the way. I couldn't remember his first name. I wrote it down, though. Another one of Rousseau's big ideas, now that we've transitioned out of Hegel and into Rousseau as an intellectual precursor. So now we've gone back. You know, Hegel, we're talking, he died in 1831, Phenomenology of Spirit in 1807. Most of his major work is in between those periods. Now we've gone back to the mid 18th century with, with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I'm not a huge Rousseau scholar, so I'm just touching lightly. You guys should all listen to Stephen Hicks. He is a very brilliant Rousseau scholar and understands Rousseau's um, importance to how everything has gone awry, whether it's romanticism, whether it's collectivism, whether it's anti-enlightenment, or anti, I should say, Scottish enlightenment, because the French enlightenment was what Rousseau was guiding, led to the French Revolution, which is not so good. Um, you should listen to him on that. He's better than I am. I'm just touching on Rousseau. But another of his main big ideas that bears relevance now is the social contract. So he believed that society basically has a prevailing social contract. He also tied this to an idea of a general will. 
which I don't think is a realistic description of what's going on. But we all kind of are bound by and live up to the social contract, and we have to accept the social contract. And it's that system of policies that Ibram Kendi refers to, or what they former, until Kendi called it policies, it was called system. And the social contract was a big idea for Rousseau. We have to have, you know, we have to, if this is how things work, we need to, you know, mold the social contract in a particular way. That was particularly what was going on in the French Revolution. We're going to mold this in a particular way. And we're going to, you know, set up a, what was it, a committee of public safety or something like that, public safety and health, whatever it was, something, public safety, I think. And they became dictators that ruled over the French Revolution and made, made for the terrors. Um, not so good. Well, this social contract is directly brought into critical race theory, in case you need to know. So we're going to go back to our friend, crazy friend, Barbara Applebaum from the Critical Whiteness Studies. Remember, being white, being good. It turns out in 1997, before I go to Applebaum, there was a book published by Charles Mills called The Racial Contract. wonder what that's about, the social contract about race. The book is actually the most elaborate and crazy conspiracy theory that I've ever heard, but building straight off of Rousseau's idea of the social contract, he claims that white people have erected a racial contract where although they never talk about it, they never teach it, they never say it, Maybe it's caught in what Ferrari and the other critical pedagogists call the hidden curriculum that gets taught alongside the real curriculum in schools. But there's a contract among all white people to keep all the other races subordinate. Because we all benefit from it, we all know. He would say, as a white person, I think Charles Mills was a white person, certainly Barbara Applebaum is a we in that category, she would say we. You have the problem that we are creating a system that is explicitly meant to keep other races excluded, whiteness as property, it's exclusivity being one of the linchpin arguments for that. And we create this social contract that is a racist social contract that upholds white supremacy because it benefits us and we don't realize it because of false consciousness or willful ignorance or active ignorance or pernicious ignorance or white ignorance or color ignorance or a lack of racial stamina, a lack of racial humility. There are so many concepts that try to justify this conspiracy theory in their literature. So what does Applebaum say? She actually quotes Charles Mill here, but she contextualizes it for us. In his oft-cited book, The Racial Contract, Mills argues that a racial contract, that's in caps, that's a proper noun, underwrites the modern social contract. The racial contract is a covert agreement or set of meta-agreements between white people to create and maintain a sub-person class of non-whites. This is a 2010 book. They're insane. The purpose of the racial contract is, quote, to secure the privileges and advantages of the full white citizens and maintain the subordinations of non-whites. Quote, unquote. To achieve this purpose, there is a need to perpetuate ignorance and to misinterpret the world as it really is. No for an oomph for you. Don't have your racial consciousness. Can't be in the dictatorship of the anti-racists. The racial contract is an agreement to not know and, and, and this is in italics, an assurance that this will count as a true version of reality by those who benefit from the account. That such ignorance is socially sanctioned is of extreme significance. Mills refers to such lack of knowledge as an inverted epistemology, theory of knowledge, and contends that it is, and now we read from Mills directly, an officially sanctioned reality, pseudo-reality, an officially sanctioned reality that is divergent from actual reality, one that has an agreement to misinterpret the world, one that has to learn to see the world wrongly, but with the assurance that this set of mistaken perceptions will be validated by white epistemic authority, whether religious or secular. Barbara Applebaum comments on this by saying, white ignorance thus will feel like knowledge to those who benefit from the system because it is supported by the social system as knowledge. Iron law of woke projection. So, Rousseauian ideas of the social contract imported directly in this new white supremacist power dynamic neo-Marxist frame. The racial contract, I was told, is not critical race theory by somebody who critiques me a lot and looks like a pineapple on Twitter. 
It is not critical race theory. It is the critical philosophy of race. Mea culpa. How stupid of me. How could I make that mistake? The critical philosophy of race. So we have this direct importation of Rousseauian ideas that led to the French Revolution and Marxian ideas through, and Hegelian ideas that led to all of these terrible atrocities of the 20th century, whether in Russia, whether in China, whether in Vietnam, whether in Korea, whether in South America, whether in Cuba, controversially, whether in Germany, and I'm not talking about East Germany. All Hegelian projects of different stripes. And they all come basically from these ideas that Rousseau had, especially that we're going to favor emotion over reason, and that we're going to let the dialectic play out across the different races, for example, and other things. The dialectic playing out across the races, though, the master-slave dialectic, that's why I mentioned Germany. That's why I mentioned Germany. Because what Hitler believed is that a race war was coming, and it was best for him to get ahead of it. The dialectical process when race was going to play out. The culmination would be a race war. And if he could get ahead of that by making a super race, he could win the race war and establish a thousand year Third Reich. It's a Hegelian project that happened in Germany and it led to walking people into ovens because this shit doesn't work. It's not gonna work this time either. Race. Hegelianism or race Marxism, race Hegelianism, has not had a good track record for the things it claims to be fighting for, like human rights, not killing people by the millions, avoiding fascism, etc. And so this is the 200 years or so, or extra 150 years or so, of muscle driving that 100-year-long shaft of the spear that is tipped with critical race theory, and the links are undeniable. The links are directly there. That it's a belief system, that it's a religion, it's all possible. So one last, just to really, really torture that metaphor, whose hands are on the spear? W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, it's obviously the people today, too, but W.B. Du Bois is a character. I didn't know where to fit him in. You can't talk about the history of critical race theory without talking about W.B. Du Bois. He's considered the intellectual godfather of critical race theory. He's said to have been doing critical race theory in the even 1890s, early 1900s, without obviously being known that it was. It turns out Du Bois died a communist, but was not a communist until later than his most famous and influential works like The Souls of Black Folk, 1903. He would actually have been described largely as a libertarian who didn't even know what socialism was, so not a very principled or clear libertarian. Uh, he was the first PhD from Harvard, African-American PhD from Harvard, smart guy. His book, The Souls of Black Folk, is clearly insightful. He's a very eloquent writer. Um, the seeds of critical theory are there, but of course, writing in 1903, if you're going to make room for a critical theory, and like I said, there's always a better way, because of the paranoid conspiracy theory side of it. In the midst of a situation where you actually have a genuinely oppressive power structure, not liberalism being called that, might be an okay place to have that. So it's an interesting phenomenon to read, uh, The Souls of Black Folk. But he's the intellectual godfather of critical race theory, cited in virtually every critical race theory book. Gloria Ladson Billings and William Tate, who I just mentioned, when I said that the goal was to make race in italics the central construct for understanding inequality, says that that's a project that builds directly off of W.E.B. Du Bois. We're going to center race. He's the connection point between all of this. And you say, well, how? Well, there's a couple of important things to bring up since I mentioned Hitler, or I alluded to him, I didn't actually say his name. And I mentioned Hegel. Before he graduated from Harvard with his PhD, W.E.B. Du Bois did a little more than a year, maybe about two years abroad in Germany. He went to Germany in 1892 or three, came back, I think at the very beginning of 1894. Two to four, I think is how it went. And he studied at the university there in Berlin. And he had tutors who were ardent German nationalists. And one of the people he went to study was Herder. Herder is a philosopher who was a strong German nationalist and who believed in folkish nationalism 
A country should be a folk, the souls of black folk. We have to respect black and brown folk. We have to get white folk to understand that they have a racial identity. Folkish nationalism, which is exactly what W.E.B. Du Bois was bringing in through the souls of black folk, later a collection of essays called The Souls of White Folk. Rampant, folkish German nationalism is what one of the projects that W.E.B. Du Bois was bringing. And what was the idea? We're now going to think of racial groups and racial cultures by virtue of material and structural determinism like countries as a folk determined by their oppression. Brown and black folks, they are folks. And intersectionality might be said to try to create Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Sensibility, not Ein Führer. This project has been tried. Kritisch Rassentheorie is not a good idea. That's how you say critical race theory in German, I think. Don't hold me to it. It is not a good idea. So W.B. Du Bois brings in folkish nationalism to the concept of race. Critical race theory picked this up, and now it's I am black, not I am a person who happens to be black because the latter would strive for a certain universality. In effect, first, I am a person. We have to think of these as individual countries, individual folk in the nationalistic sense. And they are at war with one another by class conflict. Racial class conflict, sexual class conflict, whatever you want, depends on your favorite axis of oppression. That's how they think about identities as little countries that are being oppressed by other little countries and are intrinsically at war with those. That's why they're so obsessed with colonization. And then when you add in the postmodern interpretation that each one of those things has its own set of knowledges and each set of knowledges can only be understood as an application of power within that narrow context, you see the idea that, for example, teaching science to a colonized country is in fact colonizing their minds to make them more white. So the answer is to become less white, to decolonize. The master-slave dialectic to create the savages made to live in cities is the goal to become less white without forcing black people to become or to act white, which is what Obama was accused of. It's what Kanye was accused of when he put on the MAGA hat. And W.E.B. Du Bois shuttles in these ideas through what he called double consciousness. There's Hegel's master-slave dialectic, which he studied in German. By the way, this nationalism, I forgot to tell you, this is a little funny from the introduction to the souls of black folk, a little funny kind of aside about W.E.B. Du Bois. He celebrated the Kaiser's birthday in January every day until he died at 95 in the 1960s. He dressed like a member of the German aristocracy for the rest of his life. He did his hair and was accused of Orientalism in his beard and his mustache, he groomed himself in the style of Prussia at the end of the 19th century. He was ardently a German-style nationalist, and his main tutors were ardent German nationalists, two of which were also very ardent anti-Semites. W.E.B. Du Bois got accused of anti-Semitism, but he said he just didn't care. He didn't care about the Jews one way or the other, he said. But he had this idea that he brought back, and what is it that he said? The souls, plural, of black folk, one nation. Two souls, one people. That's called double consciousness. That's your heart of that positional standpoint epistemology. And it derives directly from Hegel's master-slave dialectic, like I said. And I'll just read to you from the beginning of W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, Souls of Black Folk. This is from the first chapter. Um, you'll see he's a brilliant writer, brilliant communicator, I, it's it's a, something other than the pessimism. By the way, he did exactly the same thing to the uh, war amendments, meaning the one, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, and the beginning of the Reconstruction. He did the exact same kind of analysis on those, a very cynical, pessimistic analysis that just made things worse for black people, blah, blah, blah. He has some actually interesting arguments about that, some of which are pretty persuasive, that Derrick Bell later did about Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act. Derek Bell basically just imported W.B. Du Bois and updated it to the civil rights movement instead of the 
slavery and end of slavery and reconstruction, I guess emancipation. So Du Bois writes about his own project. He says, after the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see through the revelation of the other world. Hegel's master-slave dialectic. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, black and brown bodies, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to obtain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. The dialectic will progress across the double consciousness. In this merging, he wishes neither of the old selves to be lost, to keep, but to abolish and to lift up. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. That's exactly the colonial message that led Hegel to adopt Alfhaben as the model for the world from the master-slave dialectic that he borrowed from Rousseau. The black and the white are in, inconsolable or uh, irreconcilable. They have to be put in dialectical opposition, and the contradictions have to be worked out. And now we're at the stage where we're going to institute a, di a dictatorship of the anti-racist to make sure it works. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit on by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. And I think we all agree, and I think everybody agrees, for a very long time now with that last part, without being cursed and spit, uh, spit upon by his fellows without having the doors of opportunity roughly closed in his face. But when you understand that he's coming at the idea of being both a Negro and an American in a folkish nationalist program that he adopted from German folkish nationalism that he studied in Germany, you start to understand that he's not talking about a e pluribus unum vision of America. He's talking about we're going to have black nationalism and we're going to figure out how to be both black, I am capital B, black, that's what Kimberly Crenshaw writes, that's what we hear today, and American, without having to flood, not, or bleach, without having to bleach not the body, but the soul, with a flood of white Americanism. So you can see that this is the connection between all of the weird identity nationalism at the heart of this project being interpreted through Hegelian dialectic that later got grafted into, because this is Hegelian and its orientation, it was very easy to graft into neo-Marxism later, which was even more Hegelian than Marxism once Herbert Marcuse activated the ghetto population that he wanted to use in order to move the ball. We also see within the double consciousness, as kind of a last idea to discuss for this lecture, within the idea of the double consciousness, that the black person has a double consciousness. And that's a dialectic within himself that he's talking about. So the dialectic is working out in microcosm. Meanwhile, critical whiteness studies, which arises largely out of this view, souls of white folk later, is to induce a double consciousness in white people, racist and simultaneously anti-racist, a dialectic that has to work out. And then those two things are gonna be collided with one another. Double consciousness as imposed within black, double consciousness as assumed as the ideal archetype of humanity within whites, but now aware of this sin. And those two things are gonna be put in a dialectical process together. And we don't know how it's gonna work, but if we establish a dictatorship of the anti-racist that understands this, believes it, and tries to compel and induce it in every facet of life, everywhere, all the time, in everything you ever do, think, or try to accomplish, then it'll work this time. So I hope now that we've covered these three lectures. What is critical race theory, including its definition and core beliefs? the proximate ideological roots of critical race theory and neo-Marxism, postmodernism, uh, 
and the deeper roots in Marxism and the Hegelian dialectic, but metaphysics behind that, and Rousseau's contribution to how that came about, and then W.E.B. Du Bois as the connector between these things that went directly into critical race theory. I hope you now have a much deeper understanding of what critical race theory is, what it believes, where it comes from, how it operates, and I believe we can circle back to my definition that it's you know a neo-Marxist conspiracy theory that believes that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism that was created by whites for their own benefit. That's how it thinks about the world. It has a religious metaphysics. It has a practice built in. That's what we'll talk about after lunch, the praxis of critical race theory. Those are the charges of faith within this religion. And that's how we have to understand what this is. We began this whole series with do not attempt to cure what you do not understand. With these three lectures, I hope you really deeply understand critical race theory and what it is and realize the horrifying moment in time that we now live in because that tip of the spear has proven sharp and there's a lot of muscle behind it. I won't say the shaft part again. <laughs> so thank you for coming to this one. I think this one was shorter. So I guess we can take some time to like, at least you guys should start discussing with one another. I don't know if we're gonna do questions or not. We'll see what Mike says. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening to the deeper stuff because I think it's important. <laughs> <laughs>